Uh, let's open with a word of prayer, shall we? <clears throat> Dearly Father, um, it is my prayer this morning uh, that you may cause our love to abound more and more. Because you have first loved us, may we then have our love abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that when you return, you may approve, we, we may be found to be pure and blameless on your day because we have been filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through your Son. For this, we will give you all the praise and the glory. Amen. Uh, I knew I wanted to start this sermon um, with uh, an embarrassing story. So I started to think of several uh, about myself. And the problem with my embarrassing stories are that I either don't get embarrassed or my embarrassing stories are so embarrassing they wouldn't be fit to share. So then I thought I could share one about my wife, but that was a no-go automatically. So I settled on this illustration that I found, which I think is good. And it goes like this. My sister Becky prepared a pasta dish for a dinner party she was giving. In her haste, however, she forgot to refrigerate the spaghetti sauce, and it sat on the counter all day. She was worried that it had spoiled, but it was too late to cook another batch, so she called the local poison control center and voiced her concern. They told Becky, it would probably be okay, just make sure you boil the sauce before you serve it. Well, that night at the dinner party, the phone rang and a guest volunteered to answer the phone. Her face dropped as she called out, hey, Becky, it's the Poison Control Center. They want to know how the spaghetti sauce turned out. <laughs> Perhaps only a mildly embarrassing story. But when does embarrassment turn into shame? Uh, in the text before us, we're looking at the book of Philippians. Now, in the ancient world, in the Greco-Roman world, being in prison wasn't just a very uncomfortable place to be. It was also potentially a source of great shame, not only to yourself, but to the God whom you served. See, Paul was in prison for essentially disturbing the peace, being a bad citizen, disrupting society, encouraging the worship of a strange God. And in the ancient world, the reputation of the God you claim to worship could be measured in part by how prestigious that God's representatives were in that society. The higher up the social ladder a priestess of Artemis was, for example, the more powerful and honorable Artemis must be. Look at her worshipers. So where does that put the Christian God, Jesus, God the Father, it struck me last night as I was going over my sermon that Paul has come full circle with the Philippians. In Acts 16, we read that Paul came to Philippi at his first visit there and wound up in prison after getting beaten. But so far from being ashamed and afraid, we read in Acts 16.25 that Paul and Silas are there in jail praying and singing hymns to God. And it tells us that the prisoners were listening to them. And then we know the story, right? An earthquake shakes the prison. All the doors are open and all the chains fall off. And that's in part how the church starts at Philippi. You see, for the God of the universe, shame and honor are measured on a different scale. Honor is found in serving others, 
even when they hate you, in praying for your enemies, in seeking to rescue and bring good to those who will hate you for it. Now, the church at Philippi began that way with Paul in prison, but it began with joy and power. They met Jesus and experienced him. The jailer in that story in Acts 16 converts, and the Philippians become one of Paul's most loyal supporters, his first supporter in Macedonia, and sometimes his only supporter, both materially and in prayer, financially. But we're here in Philippians, we're a decade or so later, and Paul's in prison again. Now, again, for Paul's part, there's no shame. In 1.12, in Philippians 1.12, Paul says, hey, this is just another opportunity to share the compelling story of Jesus to my jailers. Every time they switch shifts, I get another chance to talk about Jesus. This has turned out for the advancement of the gospel. So rejoice. In jail, facing charges of crimes against the state, Paul rejoices. But it seems that this time... Maybe the Philippians are not as full of hope and joy as they once had been. The brothers and sisters in this church were faithful and were committed to the mission of the good news about Jesus. But apparently they had also experienced hardship, suffering, persecution. Their friends and their family in Philippi had probably ridiculed them and shamed them cut them off from the market, stop being friends with them, because Christians in that time and that place would have been viewed as people who were bad neighbors, wanting to be meddlesome, wanting to up, disrupt the order of things, not worship Caesar as Lord. And the Philippians were in danger, I think, of becoming worn down, tired and scared, confused and weary. They were showing signs of fractiousness and divisiveness. In chapter 4, Paul addresses two women specifically and says, agree in the Lord with one another. So here in the opening letter, in the opening of this letter, and in the entire letter, in fact, what does Paul want to do? He wants to draw their hearts and minds back into the rest and refreshment of the gospel story, which they themselves had worked so steadfastly to advance since the first time Paul came to their city. He also wants to draw them back together to heal divisions and restore unity. Unity in our churches, that, that ever-elusive goal. How do people of such diverse personalities and backgrounds not just tolerate each other, act politely around each other, make good small talk. No, in chapter 1, later in chapter 1, Paul will say that he wants the Philippians to be one-souled, standing firm together, striving side by side for the gospel. And so this opening Thanksgiving prayer is aiming to begin to achieve that for the Philippians. I promised Josh I would talk about verses 1 through 2, but here's the bit where lecturers make bad preachers. <laughs> Philippians 1, 1 to 2 deserves its own sermon. And so what I'd like to focus on this morning is mostly verses 3 through 11. So I'll just say a few things about verses 1 and 2 as a lecturer, and then I'll jump back into the preacher bit. <laughs> now, uh, since we're doing a little bit, little bit of lecture in verses 1 through 2... For those of you who know Paul well, how does Paul often refer to himself when he opens his letters? 
Shout it out. As an apostle, how does he identify himself here? He identifies himself not as an apostle, as the authoritative representative of God, but as a servant of Christ Jesus. The word there can actually also be slave. That's important because in chapter 2, verse 5, what Paul will call the Philippians back to is to have the same mind that is yours in Christ Jesus, who, even though being in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but empties himself and takes on the form of a slave. Paul is also a slave, a servant of Jesus Christ. Paul wants to identify with the Jesus he will lift up and hold up to the Philippians as their ultimate example of service and love and unity. He also, somewhat un unusually or uniquely, addresses not just all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, but also the overseers and deacons. Probably because they were experiencing the first signs of divisiveness. There was debate and struggle, confusion. We don't know for sure what it looked like, but I imagine it looked something like, should we keep on supporting a person who's in jail? Will that make our life more difficult? What about the fact that we, as a congregation in Philippi, are already struggling by being embarrassed and, and, and viewed suspiciously by our neighbors and friends and family? Perhaps what they were fighting about is whether or not it was in their best interest to continue supporting this guy who seems to always wind up in jail, beaten for his troubles. In verse 2, Paul wishes them grace and peace. We tend to run right over those words because that's how Paul always opens his letters. But notice at the very end of the letter in Philippians 4.2, how does he close? He says to them, may the grace of the Lord Jesus be with your spirit. Paul begins and ends the letter with grace. The unmerited, undeserved favor of God in which he demonstrates his love for us and rescues us from our brokenness and sin. That's what he wishes to them. Not as an idle wish, but because it actually has come about in the Lord Jesus. Okay, done with the lecture bit. In the opening Thanksgiving prayer before us this morning, Paul goes about his task of reigniting joy and healing division by inviting us into his own prayer life. First, in verses 3 through 8, Paul gives thanks to God for the Philippians and for God's work in their lives. And then second, in verses 9 through 11, Paul is going to share with the Philippians what it is that he asks God to do for them as he remembers them in prayer constantly, unceasingly. The result in this passage is that Paul casts a vision for the Philippians, that they would be men and women who are characterized through and through with the very love and wisdom of God, which comes through Jesus and results in joy-filled celebration of God's glory. So let's first ref reflect on Paul's Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving opening. 
Immediately we are struck by the fact that it is my God. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Verse 3. Likely this is the language of the Old Testament psalmists who call out to Yahweh for help to express their trust in him. For example, in Psalm 3-7, we hear, Rise up, Yahweh, deliver me, my God. Or in Psalm 7-1, we read, O Yahweh, my God, in you do I take refuge. So for Paul, as for the psalmist, as for David, God's not distant, he's not far off. Rather, he's near, he's involved. It is our God, yours and mine who Paul is praying to and thanking every time he remembers the Philippians. Now look at this other phrase in verse 3. Oh, I'm sorry, not in verse 3. Uh, oh, no, yes, in verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Sorry, I'm going on to verse 4. Always in every prayer of mine for you. Uh, there. Always in every prayer of mine for you, making my prayer with joy. Now this phrase in Greek... Uh, is actually ambiguous. Paul thanks God because he remembers the Philippians. Now, the phrase there, end in verse 7, look at verse 7. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. And then there in verse uh, 4, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day of until now. I thank my God in all remembrance of you, and in verse 7, because I hold you in my heart. There's actually an ambiguity there in the Greek. The phrase could be read because the Philippians have Paul in his heart. In verse 3, the phrase could be, I thank my God when you, Philippians, remember me. It's actually tricky in the language. Now, the textual puzzle here, all the more interesting, because it's the same textual ambiguity is contained in verse 7. And I think the context supports either reading. On the one hand, Paul is writing to encourage and exhort the Philippians, right? But on the other hand, he's also writing them to thank them for their gift, that they sent Epaphroditus to him. He's, the, he's writing to thank them for their participation in the gospel from the first day until now. So, what do we do? Which one is it? The safe and responsible pastor and scholar and reader would choose one or other of the options. I like to think of myself as neither safe nor responsible. And what I'd like to suggest, perhaps, is that Paul intended the ambiguity in, uh, on purpose. One scholar who ponders such an option has this to say. One wonders whether after writing this line and rereading the prayer, Paul may have perceived the ambiguity and rather than somehow fixing it, decided that it was the perfect expression of the relationship so valued by both sides. Is Paul thanking God when he remembers them or when they remember him? In verse 7, is Paul right to feel this way because he holds them in his heart or because they hold him in their heart? The answer is both. That's how the gospel relationships work. We enter into a mutually reciprocal relationship of love and giving and service one to another. 
And so we have this very first line that creates this sense of, of ambiguity, which is the best kind of gospel unity and service one to another. I do for you. Therefore, it's not that you owe me, but rather since that love flows from God without limit, without end, I am free to love others as they love me back. That's how Paul begins his prayer, his thanksgiving. He thanks God for that. In any case, Paul goes on to give us several reasons for his thanks to God always in joyful prayer for each one of them. First, Paul thanks God for the partnership of the Philippians in the gospel from the very start of his ministry in Macedonia. Now, as Paul sits in prison and he's looking back on his life and ministry, he remembers and is moved by the fact that the Philippians have staked their reputations, their honor, their money at Paul's disposal. Remember, in that place of competing gods and Caesar is Lord... To support Paul monetarily is not just to give sacrificially to him in terms of their money, but also to attach their reputations to his and to the God that he serves. So when Paul tells them to stand firm, to not grumble, to not complain, the Philippians understood what Paul meant when he said, I consider all things as lost for the sake of knowing Christ." The Philippians had also undergone poverty, most likely in the form of social ostracization at the very least. So here we shouldn't read Paul as scolding them, but reminding them that none of what they go through in supporting him and his ministry, none of what they go through when they share and spread the gospel, none of it is meaningless. All of it is producing an eternal weight of glory, as he'll say in another letter. Now, some see this phrase, partnership in the gospel, in verse 5, as referring only to monetary support. But I think Paul has more in mind. Gospel partnership here is likely dynamic and personal. Partnership in the gospel is as much an activity as it is a message and a story. When we hear about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, uh, we don't just tell people about it. We go out and reenact that life of service. As a powerful testimony to God's existence and loving disposition towards all people. Well would it be in this room when we all have finished the race to be described as partners in the gospel of Jesus. I hope I am that to my own colleagues at QTC. Uh, just as we saw in the introduction, and in case you didn't catch it, I'm an American. <laughs> Not from these parts. I say that because, to make a long story short, the faculty at QTC probably took a bit of a risk in hiring me. Not just because Americans are lazy and skittish, but also because there were perhaps just better local options. Could have hired someone from Brisbane, or at least from Australia. But I'd like to think that part of the reason I was hired uh, is because within me, the faculty sensed not just the potential for great scholarship, which of course that's true, but rather I think the Q, I hope that what the, the faculty saw in me is a partner in the gospel, right? Uh, 
About three or four months after I accepted the job offer, but before we had made it here to the country, the principal, Gary Miller, rang me up and said, hey, how's it going, Brandon? Uh, I hope you're doing well. Oh, by the way, the school and the entire denomination are in receivership. Uh, and he told me he would understand if I wanted to back out of accepting the job and coming and moving here with such uncertainty in the mix. But what I sensed in Gary and the faculty and the staff, even in the student bodies, uh, in the student body, were partners in the gospel. People who were here not to lift themselves up, but to serve others, to help build the kingdom in any way that they could. And that's a place I wanted to be a part of. Partnership, then, in the gospel is not just a concern to spread the story of Jesus, to magnify his name. It is in this passage one of the means by which he is calling the Philippians back to joy and to fellowship and to unity. The gospel is the first note rang here because he wants to remind and refresh them what does it mean to be people who are partners in the gospel. So Paul thanks God for the partnership of this church. He also thanks God because he is thoroughly convinced that God is at work among the Philippians believers in verse 6. Look at verse 6. I thank God because I am sure that the one who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Paul thanks God because if God is at work among them, their perseverance is a sure thing. And this makes Paul thankful. Now, the language here, the one who began a good work in you will complete it or finish it. I hope it rings a bell for some of you. It's reminiscent of Genesis 2, where we read that on the seventh day, God finished, he completed all the good work he had begun to do on day one. The point here, if Paul is indeed pointing us back towards Genesis 2, is that the work of God in keeping those whom he has called is not mechanical or static. I've saved you, you're good, I'm out of here. The work of God in our lives is not mechanical or static. It's vital. It's as vital and dynamic as God's maintenance on the universe itself. He upholds it this very second with his power, with his love. When we become united to Jesus, it is true, it is absolutely true that we are fully and completely forgiven. Yes, it's done, it's complete, it's finished. But sometimes in thinking about our salvation this way, we can mistakenly think that our justification is the end of the process of salvation, the only part that matters. I'm forgiven, it's finished. And we say to that, amen. But when we think about it too often or too deeply in this way, what we forget is that salvation is not only forgiveness of sins and peace with God. Salvation for Paul is another way of saying that the new creation itself is at work in my life and in your life. The very thing, the very creative power at work in Genesis that God used to speak the world into existence is present here because he who began a good work in you will bring it, bring it to completion. The same God that spoke the universe into existence is at work in their lives. We don't just get forgiveness of sin. 
He who made all things is at work in us, remaking all things. And so Paul thanks God a second time. For we are being conformed into the image of Jesus. In Philippians 3, 9 through 11, Paul says, my aim is to know him, to experience the power of his resurrection by sharing in his sufferings and becoming like him in his death. Philippians 1, 6 isn't just assurance of perseverance, isn't just comfort in forgiveness of sins. It's also the promise of moral and spiritual renewal. And so Paul thanks God a second time. What is the goal or the end of this work of God? Paul tells us that the one who began this good work will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This divine life, this new creation at work within us, has its goal in the day of Jesus. The one who began this work will complete it on that day. Now, this, we call this eschatological, means something that refers to the end of all things. This eschatological note that Paul strikes is very strategic. What Paul is seeking to do is draw his readers to look behind the curtain of that which is merely physical. And what he wants them to see is into the heavenly plans and purposes of God seated on his throne. The Christian perspective at the end of the day is otherworldly in the best sense of that word. Christians aren't meant to fear this day, but for those in whom God is at work, it's a day full of promise and joy. Now, interestingly, if you go and look in the Old Testament and find references to the day of the Lord, we usually think of it as a day of fire and judgment, a day of weal and woe. But it is only this for those who refuse God over and over again to their ruin and destruction. For those of us who have faithfully waited on God, it is a day of joy and gladness, a day when all wrongs are set to rights, when injustice yields to the victory and righteousness of our God and Jesus, when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. For those who wait on this God, his day is not one to be feared, but here in Philippians 1 is a thing to look forward to. And so Paul reminds them that this one at work within them is working towards something, the end of all suffering and the writing and vindication of all that they have endured for his namesake. Now, verses 7 through 8 are a bit tricky. But I think what Paul is trying to do in verses 7 and 8 is explain why he is sure that God is at work among them. Paul is sure that God is at work among the Philippians because of his deep affection for them based on their partnership with him in the gospel. Now, look at this for a second. I want to draw your attention to a particular detail here. These two verses, 7 and 8, they seem to make a largely emotional appeal to the Philippians. I have you in my heart, or you have me in your heart, and I long for you, it says, with the very affection of Jesus. Now, this is a bit shocking. What Paul seems to be saying is that 
He is sure that God is at work among them. And one of the reasons he thinks that is that he feels a very strong affection for them. In other words, he's trying to say the proof that God is at work within you is not the Philippians' own good works. It's not the Philippians' imputed righteousness based on their faith in Jesus, though he will point to that later. But right now in this opening prayer of thanksgiving, Paul says to this community of believers that his own love and affection for them is the proof of their elect status. He holds up to them his own feelings for them to ground his conviction that God is at work and will continue to be at work amongst them. But isn't that a bit subjective? I'm sure you're a Christian because I really like you. I'm sure of this thing because I I really feel deeply for you. It's a bit subjective, isn't it? It's a bit like feelings-based assurance of our own salvation. How do we deal with that? Well, I think Paul can do this Because Paul is convinced that his own emotions are conformed to those of Jesus. What does Paul say? He says that he longs for them, for each one of them, with the affection of Jesus. So because Paul has been seeking his entire life since that moment on the road to Damascus, because Paul is seeking to emulate Jesus, to be like Jesus in all things, to gain him, to be found in him, to know him through his sufferings, it should be no surprise to us then that as one scholar puts it, Paul has no yearnings apart from his Lord. Paul's pulse beats with the pulse of Christ. His heart throbs with the heart of Christ. Paul's emotions are so conformed to Jesus's that he can use them as a form of gospel encouragement for the Philippians. Now, your salvation, my salvation, rests in Jesus alone and in being united to him. But isn't it often true that in the context of life, in my relationships with other believers, with my wife, with other believers who I don't even know, Isn't it true that in the context of those relationships, Jesus is profoundly often confirmed and strengthened by a word of encouragement from another believer? God has given us himself and his spirit, and he's also given us each other, that we may confirm the gospel in each other's life. Don't give up. Don't go down that road. Stop what you're doing. Keep on doing what you're doing. It's a sign that God is at work in you. And so Paul offers one more reason why he's sure that God is at work. And he also offers himself as a model. May our own emotions continue to be formed after the very wants and yearnings of Jesus so that we may say this to each other. I know you're saved. I know you'll pull back from this sin because I long for you with the affection of Jesus and I'm not going to let you go down that road. So Paul opens this letter with a prayer of thanksgiving. He shares with them uh, his prayer life to draw the Philippians back into the story of the gospel, the presence of Jesus, the refreshment and encouragement and love and sacrifice that exists in union with him and in partnership with each other. And then in verses 9 through 11, Paul has a specific thing that he wants to pray for the Philippians. 
He's thanked God for the Philippians in a way designed for maximum gospel impact. Now he turns to request, but the request has much the same intention. Paul prays in verse 9 that the Philippians might abound in love with knowledge and all discernment, or some translations say insight, so that it might be pure and blameless on the day of Christ. One scholar put these verses this way. Paul envisages, he imagines, a spirituality where love begets discernment for what is better. That your love might abound more and more so that you may approve what is excellent, the text tells us. What Paul is getting at here is that love, the purest and truest kind of love, is not blind emotion. It is a care, a concern, and an affection that is able to see with the warp and woof of God's own wisdom, which results in choosing the best and clearest path towards what is right and good and true in every circumstance for yourself and for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, the word here for discernment or insight, that your love might abound with knowledge and discernment, that word there, uh, it occurs nowhere else in the New Testament. It's the only place in the New Testament where this word is used, discernment or insight. But interestingly, it does occur often in the Old Testament, about 20 times. And it occurs almost exclusively in the book of Proverbs, where the, where the Proverbs call us to this kind of discernment and insight. What is the book of Proverbs about? It's about having and adopting God's perspective of wisdom to see the world with his eyes and to act accordingly. And that's what Paul is praying for here. This is the language, in other words, of the Old Testament sages. The same can be said for the word for knowledge here. Now, the word for knowledge is not as exclusive to the book of Proverbs, but here's a few passages where this same word knowledge occurs in the Old Testament. In Hosea 4.1, we read that Yahweh carries out a covenant lawsuit against Israel because they are neither faithful nor is there any knowledge of God in the land. And for that, Hosea says they will be judged. In Romans 1.28, Paul uses the word, and he describes those who do not acknowledge God in their hearts, and so God gives them over. Same word. In Ephesians 1.17, Paul asks that God gives his congregants spiritual wisdom and revelation and growth in knowledge of him. So these terms, when taken together, they're wisdom terms. The fancy scholarly word for it is sapiential. Together, they refer to knowledge which comes through consistent interaction with and submission to God, the ability and moral capacity to think God's thoughts after him and then to behave accordingly. When Paul prays for the Philippians, this is what he prays for them, that wisdom would mix with love and would abound and grow so that they would be able to choose what is best. Now, I think this is a beautiful sentiment, but it's kind of esoteric, a bit hard to get at. We need something a bit more concrete. Uh, and whenever we need something uh, concrete, and I struggle to come up with a good illustration for it, I always turn to J.R.R. Tolkien. <clears throat> um, in, in his uh, famous trilogy, The Fellowship of the Ring, 
the main character, Frodo, at one point declares what a pity it is that his uncle Bilbo didn't kill Gollum when he had the chance. Now, Gandalf, the wise one, responds, and he says this, Pity? It was pity that stayed Bilbo's hand. Pity and mercy not to strike a person without need. And Bilbo has been well rewarded, Frodo. Be sure that Bilbo took so little hurt from the evil of the ring he carried because he began his ownership of it with pity and mercy. Yes, Gandalf admits that Gollum does likely deserve death for all the things that he's done. And in the wisdom of the world, the zero-sum, winner-take-all, cold, self-defensive, look-out-for-yourself logic of our culture, it would have made sense to strike to kill Gollum. But Gandalf is able to see with other eyes. He's able to see with love, with knowledge, with wisdom. And he says this in the end to Frodo. Many that live deserve death, and some that die deserve life. Can you give it to them? Then do not be too eager to deal out death and judgment, for even the very wise cannot see all ends. My heart tells me that Gollum has some part yet to play. The pity of Bilbo may rule the fate of many. And of course it does, for in the end, Frodo is, carries the, mount, the ring to the mountain, but is un, unable to let it go. And it takes the wickedness and the treachery of Gollum to set Frodo and the world free from that evil. Love mixed with knowledge and wisdom is God ultimately revealed in the person, the humility, and the obedience of Jesus, right? So Paul says that he wants this for the Philippians, and the means by which they will get it is by being filled with the fruit of righteousness that is through Jesus Christ. Now, again, we, we deal with a metaphor. What does this mean? The, 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 the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. It's metaphorical language, Right? not literal fruit. So what does this metaphor refer to? Well, uh, as Tim mentioned, either fortunately for you all or unfortunately, I wrote a dissertation on this passage. I promise I won't read the whole dissertation. Uh, I'll keep it pretty short. This phrase, the fruit of righteousness, occurs elsewhere in the Bible in only two places, in Amos 6.12 and in Proverbs 11.30. In the text of Proverbs 11.30, we read that the tree of life grows from the fruit of righteousness. The same phrase that Paul uses here. The tree of life grows from the fruit of righteousness. And if that were not intriguing enough, if you jump back to Proverbs 3 verse 18, we read there that wisdom, Lady Wisdom, the the personified wisdom of God, Lady Wisdom, is a tree of life to all those who go to her and cling to her. In Amos 6.12, the other passage where the phrase occurs, we read that Israel, far from producing and spreading the fruit of righteousness, he says, you have turned the fruit of righteousness into poison. Now, I, I think that what Paul might be doing with this phrase is tapping into the powerful symbol and narrative of the tree of life. The tree of life grows from the fruit of righteousness. 
And wisdom, the wisdom of God, is a tree of life to all her devotees. I don't think it's a mistake or a coincidence that Paul has used creation language. Remember in 1.6, the one who began a good work in you will bring it to completion? That's from Genesis 2, the creation of the world. And remember, in verses 9 and 10, we saw that Paul has already used wisdom language, the language of knowledge and insight, which comes straight from the book of Proverbs. So is it a coincidence, then, that he uses this last phrase, the fruit of righteousness? I don't think so. I think what Paul is trying to tell the Philippians is that what Israel fails to produce in Amos and what God intended for all of humanity was to take the blessing and provision of the tree of life and spread it out to the rest of the world. If the tree of life is both literally and metaphorically, what is the tree of life? I think the tree of life is literally and metaphorically the very life and energy and love of God. Right? And what it was, is, is it was intended to be ours forever and ever. If the tree of life is the very life of God intended for human beings, what Paul is praying for here is that in and through Jesus, the ultimate source of the life-giving presence of God, we might also become people who are characterized by those same qualities. So this, Paul says, is what he desires for the Philippians, that you might be men and women who begin producing the very life-giving presence of God for yourself, for others in this building, and for the rest of the world. That you would basically become a return for Eden to this community, inside and outside these walls. Now, is this a bit overly idealistic? Too much to ask for, perhaps? That we become partakers in producing of the life-giving fruit of the Edenic tree? Well, Apart from being a hopeless romantic, I think it's finally time to trot out the oh-so-famous but often misused phrase from chapter 4. If you grew up in church, you probably memorized this passage, right? I can do all things through the one who strengthens me. Now, I don't think Paul means there that God's going to help us win the footy game next week or whatever, although it could mean that. If you pray hard enough, I suppose. No. What does that phrase mean? I can do all things through the one who strengthens me. It means that with Jesus as the source, we can indeed and are indeed becoming people whose conduct and whose very lives produce life and blessing for other people as God always intended. We become men and women who are filled with the fruit of righteousness because it is through Jesus Christ that that fruit is produced. And so we end where we begin, with thanksgiving and with entreaty. What, what has Paul done in verses 3 through 11? He has cast a vision for the Philippians, that they would be men and women who are characterized through and through with the very love and wisdom of God, which comes through Jesus Christ and results in their joy-filled celebration of God's glory. 
This opening prayer is designed and intended to reignite, to console, to comfort, to encourage, to heal divisiveness, to remind them of their lives in partnership with Paul and with Christ. His goal is to inspire, to encourage, to reignite, and to, and to show them once again their love for one another born out of the deep and unbreakable love of Jesus for them. Now, it doesn't mean that their lives are going to get easier all of a sudden. But Paul did expect that these truths would not only reaffirm their conviction, but also result in renewed joy, which then becomes a theme in this letter. Many people talk about Philippians as the letter of joy. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Now, I know that many would probably carefully distinguish between the ideas of joy and happiness. Happiness is just a feeling that, that has to do with circumstances, but joy is something else, we would say, right? And there's definitely some truth to that, absolutely. Joy is not dependent on our circumstances in the moment. But I do think we go a little bit wrong when we try to claim that biblical joy is not an emotion. John Piper, I think, has it right when he says, Christian joy is a good feeling. It's not just an idea. It's not just a conviction. It's an emotion, a good one. But what does it mean then if I don't feel that emotion? When Paul says, rejoice in the Lord, and again I say rejoice, what is he doing? He's commanding them to feel a certain way. What do I do when I don't feel that way? You take heart that the one who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ. You understand that that work is not yet complete. Our emotions, just like our behavior, are being transformed and renewed, being filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. One last illustration, and then I'm done, promise. My love and affection and respect for my wife grows every day that I'm with her. But our actual wedding day was actually quite disastrous. You see, uh, my wife was not one of those girls who grew up imagining what her wedding day would be like. She kind of didn't care. And I grew up being taught that the job of a groom was to shut up and do what they're told when the wedding day is being planned. We were both young, we were both poor, we didn't have any money, and neither of us had any idea what we wanted our wedding day to look like. Uh, so what wound up happening is that we rented uh, three-piece tuxedos and had an outdoor wedding in July at my aunt's house. Uh, and it gets pretty hot in Ohio. You guys do a good job here, but I, I, mad, I reckon it was somewhere around 40 degrees Celsius that day. And I learned later that people down in the crowd were taking bets on which one of my groomsmen or the groom would pass out and roll down the hill that we were standing. The sound system that we rented went on the fritz, so none of the music or the announcements worked. And to cap it all off, nobody had thought to get someone to tell us, okay, now it's time to cut the cake, now it's time to have your first dance. So I ended up emceeing my own wedding. Uh, it wasn't an amazing day. But do you know that while there's a sense in which you can say my wedding day was perhaps ruined by those things, you know, those weren't great, there was sadness there. In another sense, when I saw my wife in that white gown walk down the aisle 
none of those problems mattered anymore. They didn't go away, but they did fade away. Nothing could distract me from her beauty and from the amazing opportunity that God had placed for me and with me to live a life with this person and to share a life with her. My problems were still there. The day wasn't great in one sense of the word, but in another sense of the word, all of those distractions faded away. And all that truly mattered was there right in front of me, God's provision in blessing me with her. So, you could rightly say in that moment that I was filled with joy, not just happiness, but with a deep-seated joy at God's provision, at his uh, provision for me. That's what Paul is seeking to do for the Philippians. He wants to cast their minds and hearts to their participation in the gospel of Jesus. He wants the Philippians to hear and feel Paul's thankfulness for them, and he wants to project them into the future of life together in God's presence through the Savior. And in so doing, he wants to breathe the gospel back into their tired, weary hearts and minds. Spur them on towards joy and unity. May it be so for all of us as well. Let's pray. Dearly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. Uh, even though I speak it imperfectly, uh, I pray that it may have impact. Uh, and the impact I pray that it will have is that it will uh, remove distractions and help us see Jesus clearly. May we hear the thankfulness of one of your followers from 2,000 years ago and be renewed in our own joy, be renewed in our determination to follow hard after the unbreakable love of Jesus. And may we then be men and women who are characterized by love and by wisdom. May that fill our hearts and minds this week. May we serve each other joyfully, sacrificially. May it be not less than emotion, an emotion, but may it also be more than that. May it be grounded and rooted in the person and the work of your son, Jesus. For this, we will walk about giving you joy and praise. We will glorify your name. And in these things, uh, I pray in your son's name. Amen.